When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Zainab Badawi, welcome to the Emmanuel Centre in London for this Intelligence Squared debate. This weekend, Donald Trump marks his 100th day in office as President of the United States, and what a tumultuous period it's been. We've seen his travel ban on seven Muslim-majority countries thwarted, relations with Russia have soured, and his critics have said this has vindicated their fears. But... Trump supporters say, no, not at all. He's made a tremendous impact by reasserting U.S. leadership. For instance, he dropped the mother of all bombs on militants in Afghanistan and he's fired cruise missiles on Syrian military bases. So how is the 46th president of the United States doing? Well, that is our motion today. Trump is making America great again. And we have an excellent panel. So... Let's have the opening statements from the panellists. And speaking first for the motion, Trump is making America great again. Conrad Black, he's former chairman of the Telegraph newspapers and numerous other publications. He's written biographies of Presidents F.D. Roosevelt and Richard Nixon, as well as a strategic history of the United States. Conrad Black, please make your way to the lectern. Thank you. Thank you, Zainab. Thank you all for your welcome. In the first 16 years of this new century, the GDP per capita of the United States has grown by 1%. And if it had grown in this period at the rate that it did in the last 20 years of the 20th century, the people, the families and individuals of the United States would be on average 20% wealthier than they are. The GDP growth rates in the latter stages of the 20th century were 
for most of the 80s in the Reagan administration, 4.5 percent. For most of the 90s in the Clinton administration, 3.9 percent, though the balance of payments deficit was growing and Already, the housing bubble was being deliberately inflated by executive and legislative action, but still a healthy growth rate. In the George W. Bush years, it was 2 percent, and in the Obama years, it was 1.1 percent, despite the fact that in injecting stimulative spending, the national debt of the United States rose in the eight years of President Obama from the figure where it was when he was inaugurated after 233 years of American independence by 125 percent to get a 1.1 percent economic growth rate. In this period, 15 million people, in these 15 years, 15 million people have fallen out of the workforce. The percentage of Americans above the age of 20 who work has declined by nearly five full percent. And the number of hours worked, any kind of legitimate work in the United States in that period has declined by the shocking total of 12 percent. These, uh, these are very dangerous figures and a very dangerous trend. I'll just give one more statistic. The, the level of net additional investment in business and private sector industry in the United States from the end of World War II to the end of the 20th century, 55 years, was 5.3 percent. In the 16 years of this, of this century, it is less than one-third of that, 1.7 percent. And the impact of this is, is a very burdensome to the country, and it's very worrisome to the country. And you must remember that the ethos of the United States is one of such optimism and such ambition that it is not a country accustomed to the concept of decline at any time, and it has never had a period of absolute or comparative decline such as it has had in the last 15 to 20 years. And it, it very much concerns the whole country. But coming up to the election, it must be said, this was not mentioned by the established elements of either party. It was very little mentioned in the media. And, and it was really only seized upon by outlier candidates, to some degree Senator Sanders, who is uh, a democratic quasi-Marxist and, and a sort of Jeremy Corbyn, Jean-Luc Mélenchon figure, uh, who will never be elected to a serious administrative office in the U.S. for the reasons of his ideology. And on the other side, on the Republican right, Senator Cruz. Now, if you people are startled by Donald Trump, you will really be shocked if you get a good look at Senator Cruz. He's pitched his whole campaign to the corn cobbers and the wool hats and the people with automatic weapons in the rear windows of their pickup trucks. And, and he, uh, as far as I can see, would hand over the Pentagon to the National Rifle Association. And he declared in Indianapolis last spring that God told him to run for president. Now, I never mock anyone's religion, but when it is the presidency of the United States, that sort of comment scares the Jehovah out of me. And in this, in this last election year, in policy terms, Trump was a moderate. 
he was he is in favor of universal health care. It's obviously going to be with some difficulty that he gets there, but he's in favor of it, at least as a concept. And he is in favor of lower taxes for lower income people and higher taxes for higher wealth people. And in policy terms, he's a very reasonable person. Now, I, I, I'm not anti-Clinton. I know the Clintons, and my relations with them are, are very cordial, especially I know him much better, but I, I'm not here to Clinton bash at all. But the, the, the fact that Mrs. Clinton referred to half of Trump's supporters as deplorable was extremely unwise, given that she was, after all, running for the highest office in the country. It was a little like uh, Mr. Obama when he lost to Mrs. Clinton the Pennsylvania primary in 2008, dismissing it as the verdict of the industrial working class of Pennsylvania, whom he said were losers who'd fallen back on religion and firearms. Now, these people may not be the ones you would want to fill up White's Club with, but they are the American working class, and they are the bedrock of the great Democratic Party of Woodrow Wilson and Alfred E. Smith and Franklin D. Roosevelt, and they should not be disparaged. And these people are worried. And uh, what occurred was an assault by Trump upon the entire political establishment. He ran against all factions of both parties. He ran against practically all the media, almost all of audible and visible academia. He ran against the lobbyists, the polling organizations, the bureaucracy, Wall Street, and quite explicitly, uh, that infestation of useful, to his enemies, idiots in Hollywood. He ran against all of them, and he won. Uh, and he has one with a program that is quite radical. He has a tax plan, which I understand he intends to reveal at the end of this week, uh, which will include taxes sharply reduced for all corporations, sharply reduced for lower income groups, a tax incentives to start a decades late renovation of national infrastructure incentivizing $2 trillion of retained profit overseas to return to the U.S. Uh, and, and he has already dismantled the nonsense of global warming uh, impediments to American industry, which even the Environmental Protection Agency director of the former president acknowledged, despite their heavy cost, would only reduce the temperature by one hundredth of one centigrade degree. And and he has, a, he has already shown that he will um, give the country, as has been mentioned, a foreign policy that is neither the trigger-happy belligerency of George W. or the Panglossian fantasy of Obama telling America's enemies and allies to change roles and places. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Conrad Black. Now, the first voice against the motion, Kiza Khan is a Muslim-American lawyer whose son was killed in action in Iraq. At the 2016 U.S. Democratic Party convention, he denounced Trump's call for a ban on migrants from some Muslim countries and questioned his understanding of the U.S. Constitution. Kiza Khan, please make your way to the lectern.
First, I wish to admit something. I am the most undeserving person to be sitting on this stage before this honorable audience, but uh, the nature of invitation and conversation is such that, uh, that I must stand before you and share with you my observation. This is my 107th appearance since appearing at the Democratic National Convention by invitation, community after community after community, and especially since the election has invited and is expressing their concerns and is expressing and asking this humble, private, modest citizen, where are we headed? Let me share, there was my honorable friend mentioned some numbers and statistics. Here are April 2017's Gallup's numbers. Please take a note, and then I will cite five accomplishments of Donald Trump. Gallup survey of April 2017 says he keeps his promise. In February, it was 62 percent. In April, it's 45 percent. America is discovering the true nature of this president. And the motion is, Trump is making America great again. And I stand before you against the motion. The second is statistics. He is honest and trustworthy. In February, 42% American thought he is honest and trustworthy. In April, that number is 36%. He's making America great again. Can manage government. 44% Americans in February thought he could do that. In April, because of all the haphazardness in the White House, it is 41% now. Cares about people. 46% Americans in February thought he does care about people. In April, it's down to 42%. Can bring about change country needs. In February, Americans thought 53%. American thought he can bring about the change. In April, it's 46%. You can now draw the conclusion, is, America, is Trump making America great again? I wish to cite six facts my honorable friend mentioned in support of Donald Trump making America great again. Facts. Here are the facts. You remember? The very loudly pronounced bigoted statement by candidate Trump was, I will build the wall and Mexico will pay for the wall. Well, friends, we all know Mexico is not paying for the wall. And the wall is not being built. 
The reason is that to build the wall, you need funding. And Congress has loudly announced that they will not allocate any funding for the building of the wall. So we are waiting. Remember, the second promise and loudest promise was we will repeal and replace Affordable Care Act in United States. He promised that during the election campaign. And then he tried, and you saw three weeks ago how it was defeated when it went to the Congress. His party is the majority party in the Congress, yet that proposal was defeated. Third, jobs. I will create thousands of jobs in the United States. Coal miners will be back to work. I have stood in these 106 appearances before communities, before people that are concerned. I have stood in front of them, and people have asked me that question, Mr. Khan. We know you're not, you're a private citizen, you're an ordinary citizen, but we must ask you this question, where are the jobs? We don't see them. Even in the near future, we don't see them. So that is the job promise. I am a Muslim American. I am a patriotic Muslim American. I consider myself responsible for the safety and security of the United States. We heard Muslim ban number one and Muslim ban number two. And my learned audience, you all know where the ban is frozen in the American courts. Rule of law has prevailed. In democracy, we all live in democracy. We are so fortunate to be living in democracy. Democracy is nothing but tyranny of majority. It's the rule of law that puts sense into the rule of majority so that it doesn't become tyranny. Those both bands are frozen in the court system. They shall remain there. And the most latest news on the judicial process about the ban is that the government is asking more time to respond to the briefs that have been filed against those bans. The fifth and much talked about accomplishment is the appointment of Judge Gorsuch to Supreme Court. He's going to make America great again. No, he's not. Judge Gorsuch, Honorable Judge Gorsuch, his appointment was made possible by changing the rules of the Congress, rule of Senate. Lifetime appointments were made by consent, by joining hands, because these are lifetime appointments. To appoint Donald Trump's nominated judge, Senate rule were changed. Instead of 60 votes, were changed to simple majority. That is the only accomplishment that you know that he had been able to do. Remember, within 100 days, within 100 days, his national security advisor, agent of foreign governments, 
was disgracefully walked out of White House, was asked to resign. Keep this issues that I mentioned to you, is this the way to govern one of the most enviable democracy in the world? I consider Europe to be the bastion of democracy, enlightenment. So do I consider United States to be the center of hope and dignity for the rest of the world. What you have seen so far, does that indicate in any shape or form that America is being made great again? No, it does not. I stand before you as a humble, modest citizen that have traveled and have answered question after question throughout the country. I'll give you one simple example. I was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Two tables full of veterans stood up and said, Mr. Khan, we have come to listen to you, but we want to express our concern. We have voted for Donald Trump. But where, is, where are the jobs? We are still waiting. Where is our health care? We were promised that health care will be even better. Two of them had dialysis tubes still attached to their arm, and they extend the arm, showing it to me. Mr. Khan, we are so concerned that this pre-existing condition that is taken care of under Affordable Care Act will be taken away from us. Do something. And briefly, I mentioned we received thousands of letters of support. One letter that stands out, this is by a retired army nurse that served in Second World War in Germany. She writes to us. She said, Mr. Khan, remember the atrocities that took place during Second World War because very few people spoke. Continue to speak. Continue to speak so we will not allow anyone to repeat those atrocities ever again in the history of mankind, ever again. I oppose this motion. You heard my brief statements and my story that continues, my journey that continues is in opposition of Donald Trump in support of democracy, democratic values, safety and security of my country, safety and security of Europe, safety and security of mankind. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kazir Khan. Now, our second speaker for the motion is Aaron Banks. He's a former major donor to UKIP, the UK Independence Party, and co-founder of Leave.eu. He recently quit UKIP to set up a new populist political force called the 
Patriotic Alliance, whose aim is to bring Trump-style politics to the UK. He's also launched the anti-establishment news website, Westmonster, which is modelled on the American websites Breitbart and the Drudge Report. Aaron, please make your way to the lectern. Thank you. Good evening. Um, I just want to tackle the, the last point that the last speaker made. As a businessman, to achieve anything in 100 days is uh, pretty much impossible, let alone make America great. So I think Donald Trump has set out to actually do the things he said he was going to be elected to do. The fact that the establishment, both in the Republican Party and elsewhere, have tried to stop him is not an indictment of his presidency after 100 days. But what I wanted to do was reel back the clock a little bit and look about the reasons why Donald uh, Trump was the reason Donald Trump was elected in the first place. Globalisation has caused massive dislocations within the world. We've seen huge amounts of money transfer from the poor to the rich. And in fact, just today, I, I, I left Mayfair in the morning, we went down to Clacton and visited what is the poorest part of England in a place called Jaywick. It's overlooked, it's, uh, it's a shambolic place. And the contrast between Mayfair and that area that was you know, utterly just hollowed out, to, to be frank. And it takes us where we, we joined the Trump story in Mississippi, where we were asked to go down, or Nigel was asked to go down and speak in Jackson, Mississippi. And 20,000 people came out to listen to Donald Trump and to listen to Farage, and there were another 20,000 queued down the road. And the reason was that, in essence, they were disappointed with the political class. And the fact, I think Conrad mentioned all the economic stats, but the only one you need to know is a salary of a normal American have flatlined for over eight years. You know, the, the, the communities were hollowed out. And so Donald Trump was a response, a kind of almost anti-political response. Now, I would agree with some of the comments of the previous speaker. He's a deeply flawed candidate, a deeply flawed president. But what he represents is a catalyst. And I don't think that Donald Trump will make America great again. I think the people of America will. And when we look at the major policies, which, you know, is to bring back jobs into America, to look at how you could uh, change the tax system to actually bring companies back in, there's something like $2 trillion parked offshore out of America because the tax system of America means that corporation tax there is 38%, the highest in the, the Western world. And I think he's got a whole range of policies that will be very beneficial. But I think we have to see it in the context... The same as Brexit. Why did Brexit happen? People in London didn't see it coming because they didn't go out and look. If you actually look at what's happened to communities in our country, they've been hollowed out. And actually it was a reaction from the poorest in our society that thought that the politicians and the, 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 the sort of corporations, it just wasn't in, in, in their benefit. And I think that's very much where Donald Trump has come in. I think you know, I, I watched the French election last night and Macron's going to win. I can tell you, if the entire British establishment line up and say, pick that guy and, and not Marie Le Pen, in the same way that everybody lined up against Trump, there's going to be big trouble. And, that, and don't rule it out. So I think from my perspective, it's not a question of whether Donald Trump will make America great again. It's whether he will free up Americans to once again make America great again. That's my, that's my key point.
So I've now probably run in way behind time, but that's the, the main point I had to make. Thank you. very much indeed, Aaron Banks. Now, speaking secondly against the motion Trump is making America great again is Anne Applebaum, American journalist and Pulitzer Prize winning historian. She's a regular columnist on the Washington Post and is also a visiting professor at the London School of Economics, where she runs a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. Anne, please make your way to the lectern. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have to start by saying I'm terribly sorry. Um, no, Mr. Black. No, Mr. Banks. Trump is not making America great again. You've been conned. Um, we are. It was amusing to hear Conrad Black speak about facts. This is not a president who respects facts. We already know by now that he's lied to his supporters. He's lied to the people in the heartlands who voted for him. He has not kept any of the legislative promises that he made for his first 100 days. And yes, he did make them. They're on a piece of paper. You can find them. He may never keep them. Uh, we know that his populism was a total farce. His allegiance is not to the people who elected him. You know, or he, his allegiance is to the billionaires and to the lobbyists and to Wall Street and to the people who filled his cabinet and who run much of his White House, and above all, his allegiance is to himself. We know that he spent more time golfing in his first 100 days than the previous four occupants of the White House put together. We know he spends even more time watching cable television because since he doesn't have the attention span to read or listen to briefings, he tweets and makes policy in response to whatever he sees. We also know that he will do profound damage to American democracy, as you've heard already from Mr. Khan. Um, but Trump has already done really profound damage to America's reputation around the world as an ally, as a trading partner, and even as a serious country. And this is going to get worse, and it's going to get much worse. Every day, the incoherence deepens. He's never going to intervene in Syria, he says, but then he saw, or perhaps Ivanka saw, pictures of dead children on television, and he changed his mind. He's going to get Mexico to pay for a wall, but actually, it will cost 12 to $15 billion of US taxpayers' money. He has a secret plan to defeat ISIS, but actually, his strategy is no different from Obama's. He's going to challenge China on trade, on Taiwan, but now he isn't. He's going to make friends with Russia, but after the press exposed his campaign's deep connections to Russia, he's decided, for the moment at least, to drop that idea. He's unable to name the leader of North Korea with whom he would like to tussle, <laughs> against whom he appears to want to go to war. He claimed to have sent an aircraft towards the Korean peninsula, but actually it was heading in the opposite direction. <laughs> He had dinner with the Chinese dictator and then offended South Korea, who our allies were defending, by declaring incorrectly that Korea actually used to be part of China. <laughs> he lies repeatedly about crowd sizes, about wiretapping, about his campaign team's relationship with Russian officials, about the crime rate, about employment figures, about the trade deficit, 
Uh, he's lied about what he said he would do. He's lied to his supporters. He insults our allies, not only South Korea, but Mexico, Australia, Germany, Sweden, uh, while fawning over dictators like Sisi and Erdogan, especially if he owns property in their countries. Teams of people, the Defense Secretary of the United States, the Vice President, have to be sent around the world to apologize for the foolish statements that Trump has made, but everybody knows it doesn't really help. Every day he is teaching our allies, and they are learning, that we will not stand up for them, that the American President's word cannot be trusted. He'll change his mind depending on what's on television the next morning. Assad and Putin have learned they can continue to prosecute their war in Syria because the U.S. President is neither consistent enough nor honest enough to hold them to account. One bomb, and then what? What's the strategy? What happens next? We don't know. He doesn't have a strategy because he's never thought about it before, and he's never thought he needed to have one. China has learned that it merely needs to flatter, bribe, and distract the American president in order to get its way. Ordinary people, and I suspect many of them are in this room, all over the planet, laugh aloud at the foolish and ignorant things that, the, of the, that are said by the man who lives in the White House. Ordinary people can also see how easy it is now to bribe an American president. Since taking office, Trump has never displayed the remotest concern for American national interests or for American values or indeed for most Americans. But he is obsessively interested in his own business. He's refused to separate himself from his companies, which are nominally run by his sons or from the multiple conflicts of interest that they represent all over the world. Trump affiliates in Indonesia have been involved in bribery scandals in Brazil, the company pulled out of a branding agreement amid a criminal investigation of a local partner. In Azerbaijan, his business, his business partners are linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard. In these places and many others, there will be, there are politicians seeking to bribe him in exchange for changes in U.S. government policy. And what's happened since he was elected, unknown people and companies have invested hundreds of million dollars in Trump, in Trump real estate since then, using shell companies which make it impossible for the public to know who is behind the sales. Are they overpaying on purpose? Are they doing so in hope of favors? We have no idea. As in third world and post-Soviet dictatorships, it's not just Trump who benefits, it's his children. On April the 6th, Ivanka Trump's company won provisional approval from the Chinese government for three new trademarks, giving it a monopoly rights to sell her brand products, purses and spa treatments and handbags, shoes. That same night, Ivanka and her husband sat next to the president of China during a dinner at Trump's resort Mar-a-Lago, a place where, incidentally, the Secret Service have also spent tens of thousands of dollars since January. And Ivanka and her husband, an unqualified real estate developer, are, with all of their multiple conflicts of interest, now Trump's most important foreign policy advisors, since he's unwilling or unable to hire officials in the normal way. Where does this leave us? America used to fight kleptocracy. This was actually a policy of the U.S. government. But now America is becoming a kleptocracy. You know, American governments used to encourage others to be more transparent. This was part of our foreign policy, was to encourage our partners and, and our, 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 our allies around the world to increase transparency. Now the U.S. president is shutting out the press and the civil service. He's concealing his tax forms, and he's hiding his contacts so that his potentially illegal activity will be harder to uncover. America used to stand for democracy, but now America stands for nepotism. 
As a nation, our ability to influence others and shape the world has long derived not just from military and economic power, but from the power of our ideas and from the solidity of our system. All of that's gone. You know, so no, America is not being made great. Uh, America is being made corrupt and inconsequential and tawdry and laughable by Donald Trump, who is the most dishonest, most venal, and most malevolent president that we've had in living memory. Thank you. Dear, those of you who are for the motion, I think Anne Applebaum certainly got the most uh, applause there and a standing ovation from your uh, fellow speaker there. Um, Anne Applebaum, thank you very much indeed. So, <laughs> Before we go to uh, the audience, let me tell you... Um, your thinking before the start of this Intelligence Square debate, our motion Trump is making America great again. For the motion, 13%, 13%. Against the motion, 67%. And the don't knows, 20%. So um, you've got a lot of persuading to do, gentlemen. Let's um, now go to the audience, see if they have any comments or questions to our panellists. And can I see hands, please? I would like to ask Anne very much. She's absolutely assassinated absolutely everything to do with Trump. What I'd love to know is just what... He has been elected, and what has been so very wonderful about the foreign policies of the West, of Europe, America, we have created a system in our world. I'm in rage about what's been happening to all the... Middle East, everywhere. We are fighting important battles, serious ones for our children. And I don't think that the previous administration or the in fact, since the Berlin Wall came down, we've lost the plot. Right. Who's got the microphone? Yep. Hi, uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm actually a father of two boys. Both of them go to public schools uh, in Florida now, in New York City before then. And uh, what I'm seeing in the public school system in the United States is absolutely terrifying. If I could, I'd move them to private schools. How do you think that the new Secretary of Education is actually helping Trump make America great again? She's because not. what I'm seeing is really, really worrisome. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Yep. Hello. So my question was just for the gentleman supporting the motion is, what in your mind makes America great? Because there's a lot of talk about jobs, so let's just say, what, is it being rich, or is it having a job, or how do you see America, or for the gentleman from UKIP in Britain, what put, what's the great back in Great Britain? You know, what is it that he's doing to make America great? Okay. Can we stick, please, Aaron Banks, with just the United States, because that's what we're debating here. So, let's start with you, Aaron Banks. So, 
How is Trump putting the great back into uh, the United States of America? Trump is about the nation state. I think that's very much what we've been about. And I think it's this idea that globalism and not having these kind of international big corporations that kind of, uh, you know, cause half of the problem. And I think in America, they're going to focus internally in America. I'm quite interested in what the lady said up there because... One of the things I'd be very disappointed in Trump in is the intervention in Syria, which I think was wholly wrong. And I think this continual projection of American kind of foreign policy into the Middle East is, is the wrong thing. I think he should have stuck to what he said, which was basically, uh, you know, not to have an intervention in this policy. All right. Um, Conrad, would you like to pick up the point about how we see putting the great back into America? Of course, it is a great nation, and it has never ceased to be a great nation, at least since the end of the U.S. Civil War. So we're really talking about reversing the decline of it, which I tried to describe in economic terms, though it occurs in other ways. It's now the first time in American history that the life expectancy of an American has declined. It's not chronic, as in Russia and Ukraine, but it's declined by one month. Uh, And indeed, the life expectancy of a newborn American is now, if you can believe it, less than in the states of the Federal Republic of Germany that were formerly East Germany. And uh, there are things that are going terribly amiss there. So uh, if I may mention the question about education, Ms. DeVos, the education secretary, is a famous and active supporter of charter schools, and she believes that private schools run in the communities with non-unionized teaching staff have a better chance. There's ample reason for, for believing this, as Anne would know as a parent in the U.S., uh, for believing that indeed this could reverse the decline in standards of American public education, which is another very, very serious problem. Uh, if I, well, I'm at it, if I may, without, without filibustering, the Mexican wall will be built. Uh, it will be built, uh, Kieser. Uh, he's called for bids on it. And I think historians of the future will be absolutely incredulous that the United States tolerated uh, 12 to 15 million completely illegally uh, unskilled people to enter their country. It, it, it would be like uh, between two and three million people suddenly arriving here, not speaking the language and not having any skills to make a living. I mean, he wants immigration, he'll have it, but he wants it to be legal. Keith's point, I think, was And that by the way, in Mexico will pay for it because well, he's going to alter the trade agreement. That's how they were always going to be. Thank you. I just want to make sure that people in the audience do get their questions answered. Anne Applebaum, um, specifically the question from the lady who said she wants an inspirational United States, not one that goes around telling countries how to behave and particularly concerned about U.S. stroke Western foreign policy. Well, I very much appreciated what you said about since the Berlin Wall came down, we've lost the plot. It's actually true that for 15 years after the end of the Berlin Wall, we did have a very consistent and cohesive foreign policy, and it was about expanding security and expanding to prosperity across Europe. And it was, if I may say so, one of the most successful projects that Europe and the West and the United States together have ever done. It was successful. It worked. Um, we, have, we, we expanded markets, we expanded trade, uh, we expanded freedom, uh, and, and it, was a, it was an incredibly, it was a great project. Um, the trouble is now that you have a president who not only doesn't appreciate that project, I'm not sure he knows it happened. 
Um, he, he, was, he was recently interviewed a, couple, a few days ago. He was interviewed about a comment he made during the campaign during which he said that NATO is obsolete. NATO, of course, was one of the tools of security, spreading security into the East that we used in that era and still use now. And he said, yes, well, when I was first asked about that, I said NATO is obsolete, but I didn't really know very much about NATO. And now, I guess, I don't know, maybe it was General Mattis, the, the, the defense secretary, has explained to him, now I know maybe it's not that it's obsolete. So now maybe it'll be different. But he is not somebody who has any feeling of what the West can do together, what we as allies can achieve, what America and Britain can achieve, have done together in the past. He, he doesn't have any sense of that at all. He doesn't have any way of projecting it because he's never thought about it, um, and he doesn't care. Um, so, you know, in order to in order to revive American foreign policy, you would have to. And by the way, I'm very much in favor of reviving it and rethinking it. And I was not a fan of Obama's foreign policy, but this is not a debate about Obama. Um, uh, but in order to in order to revive that, you'd have to start from the beginning. What are our values? What do we want to project in the world? What are we trying to achieve? This is a man who can't do that because he doesn't know what those values are. He doesn't feel them. He's never thought about them, um, and, he, and he doesn't care. Thank you. And if you could keep your answers as brief as possible, I can get more questions. If I can get more questions, Thank you. I'll take some more questions from the floor, please. Who's got the microphone? There, yes. Anne Applebaum uh, said that the American people have been uh, conned by Trump. Mm. I'd suggest that the American people have been conned by the left-wing journalists at the Washington Post and the New York Times. For example, they, for example, they were saying on the election night that it was 98% certain that Hillary was going to get elected. Now, that's a con job for a start. Now, this is the left-wing media, which is not telling uh, the liberal intelligentsia here, for example, that the Americans' working class, America's poor, are fed up with globalization, they're fed up with the divisive identity politics, and what they're looking for from left-wing journalists is some understanding of what's going on, why people are so unhappy that they vote for Trump. So instead of just this endless hatred of Trump, why isn't there some reflection going on about why left-wing journalists got it so wrong at the Post and at the New York Times? OK, fine. But do remember... <laughs> very, very quickly. Um... So I, I, used to work, I used to work for Conrad Black's Spectator and then for his Daily Telegraph. So I didn't think I'd count as a left-wing journalist. So centre-left, uh, centre-right there. <laughs> yeah, OK. Oh, centre-right publications, at least, that you worked for. Thank you. Um, presuming that um, Mr. Trump has one, where do you think his moral compass points? Okay. Thank you. Okay, let's just take uh, a couple of questions. Where is Donald Trump's moral compass, Conrad or Aaron? Uh, I must say that, as, as I said at the outset, I didn't want to get into the polemics, which customarily are... Uh, incited by this subject, and, and much of what's gone on here is illustrative of that. I mean, Anne, I don't think you know Donald. You don't know him well. I've known him for over 20 years, and his moral compass is that he's a very loyal friend. He had a perfect record as an equal opportunity employer. He's been in rough businesses. The, the local politicians that he has to get zoning changes from are all crooks. The building trades unions are run by the mafia. It's, he's not a genteel businessman, and he's the only business 
businessman who's ever been the president, but he is a man whose word is absolutely reliable. We had him as co-developer in Chicago. Uh, he built a magnificent 70-story building. Chicago, although it's a very crooked city, is proud of its architecture, the city of Frank Lloyd Wright. He came in right on budget, right on time, and, and filled it with first-class uh, occupants. And when I had my legal difficulties, he volunteered to come and testify for me. And, uh, and he is a loyal friend, and, okay. and, uh, and not to be compared to many of uh, our other neighbors on yeah. South Ocean Boulevard and Palm Beach or on Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue, who uh, have miraculously recovered from this amnesia, but many of whom okay. forgot my telephone number for 10 years. And uh, my, Donald Trump, should not be subjected, just not because he's Donald, the president of the U.S. should not be subjected in a meeting like this to a lot of uninformed mind reading. He has his limitations and he has his infelicities and they grate on me as much as I'm sure they do on you. But he should not be described in these outrageous terms. He has achieved a completely unprecedented feat in being the only person in the history of the United States who never sought a political office, never had a military command, and took over from outside uh, first a political party and then the government. He did it because the people knew that they had suffered from 15 years of chronic misgovernment. And he has a program to put it through, and you can't do it in 100 days. And that's just an artificial deadline imposed by his enemies to try and hold sessions to say Donald didn't do anything in 100 days. Keith, so do you want to come in at all well, on these? Uh, uh, somebody had asked about moral compass. Yes, Trump has moral compass. That is self-promotion. His moral compass is political expediency. Say whatever helps you for the moment, regardless of how it will be changed when the circumstances, when the time change. I have stood in front of Trump voters. I have answered their questions. Where are the jobs we were promised? Where is health care we were promised? We don't see this in sight. We were promised things will change immediately. When I get in the office, you will have jobs and thousands of jobs and all that. That is political expediency, misleading people and he did not win that election. The facts are worth looking into. He won the election because of the Electoral College. He did not win the popular votes. Okay. Never forget that. Thank you. We'll go to more questions from the floor just very quickly because we're going to be voting now, but I will take a couple more from the floor. I have a question for the four proponents or the proponents of the motion. I would like to know how you would reconcile the idea of bringing back jobs for the downtrodden working class that Mr. Black mentioned, um, for making America you know, the land of opportunity again with the incredible wealth that is concentrated in the White House and the cabinet, the cabinet being the wealthiest one that's probably ever been seen, and certainly in modern history. So if you could reconcile those two, Thank how you. the common man will benefit from the extreme wealth. Thank you. Young lady there. This is mainly directed to the, uh, um, for the uh, motion. When do you think America was ever great? Ever great? Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Let me give to uh, the for the motion side. How do you reconcile helping the downtrodden 
uh, with the fact that it's the wealthiest cabinet uh, in the White House and um, also when was America ever great? Well, I think tackling the, uh, the wealthy cabinet, I mean, these are some of America's greatest business people in the White House, which is, uh, I think, a phenomenal thing. And I think the plan is they're going to reduce corporation tax, they're going to make a very friendly, business-friendly environment for America, and they will bring back jobs, and they're going to look to create a, a growth rate of 3 or 4% rather than the anemic uh, 1% or less that we've been exp- or they've been experiencing. So I think that this idea that just because they're rich, they're going to you know, somehow do things to their benefit, if anything, um, they don't have a vested interest. They're already rich. Okay. Thank you. Can they reconcile the two? This side. Look, we were promised what was the term used? Cleaning the swamp? Draining the swamp. Draining the swamp. The swamp has gotten worse. Look at the cabinet. Look at the appointments. We were told there will be transparency. Has anybody seen his tax records? And there is a reason he doesn't want to share the tax record, because that is where lies the foreign influence, influence of the foreign banks. That is where lies the reason that's such a collusion between Russia and, and Donald Trump and his advisors. He will not show. So forget about jobs, forget about this is going to be self-promotion every step. He said during the campaign and prior to then, oh, I cannot comment about Turkey because I have investments there. There is a conflict of interest. And immediately, immediately of Erdogan getting, changing the, 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 the democracy of Turkey to almost a dictatorship, he picks up the phone, he calls and congratulates him. This is going to be, these four years are going to be this. My friends on the other side have tried to reassure you that these are only 100 days. Give him some more time. This is going to continue to get worse. So who's driving the agenda was a question, Anne. Who's driving the agenda is a fascinating question. We don't really know. Um, uh, we know we know who his advisors in theory are. We know who he's supposed to be listening to. Um, but it seems to change from week to week. Um, he was listening to Steve Bannon. Now apparently he's not. Uh, he listens quite a lot to his son-in-law, who, as I said, has no experience in any of these issues and no knowledge of them um, because he trusts family members. Um, if we're lucky, and this is a very strange statement if you think about it, if we're lucky, he will listen to the many generals that he's appointed to important jobs because they at least have this sense of what America is and what America can be and what it should do abroad and what it should stand for, um, General Mattis and, and, um, and General McMaster at the National Security Council. But it is a very, very odd moment in American history where we have something almost like, and I, I don't even know that it's negative, we have a kind of soft military takeover because there's, there's so many offices are empty, so many jobs haven't been filled. You know, we have a president who changes from one day to the next his policy. We are now really reliant on our generals uh, to, keep, to, to keep making the daily decisions um, that, will keep, you know, that will keep American foreign policy ticking over. And if we're lucky, that will happen. Okay. I'll just take two or three more questions, please. Can I see? Yep. Carry on. 
If you can make them as brief as possible. Thank you, young man. I've got a question for Mr Khan. Uh, um, with the Democrats vowing to fight Trump in Congress and the Senate and some rogue Republicans voting against his, um, his proposals, how do you s suppose that he'll be able to get his um, proposals through the Congress? Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Uh, this is for the foresight of the motion. Uh, Trump has been focusing on the so-called American dream of having a land of opportunity and bringing back jobs. How can you reconcile that with his uh, ban, his, tra his travel ban? Uh, and doesn't that completely contradict the whole idea of a land of opportunity? Thank you. Right. And probably our final point, yeah. We haven't had the luxury to know um, Mr. Trump for 20 years like Conrad Black has, but we've had the opportunity to hear him speak and read his tweets. A gentleman before mentioned red lines and that Trump is someone that has red lines. Um, I question whether he has red lines when it comes to behavior, and I would put forward that the presidency has a certain gravitas, it has a certain professionalism, and that's important. It's hard to quantify the impact of that, but I would, I would uh, ask what your view is. I personally think that he's cheapened that somewhat, and I'd, I would be interested in hearing what you uh, think of that and the importance of, of that, that gravitas. Yes, I think he's cheapened it enormously. Um, and, and leave aside what he did for the, for the previous several decades. I mean, I, I, it's true, I don't know Trump personally as Conrad does, and I, I don't make my judgments about politicians on those grounds in any case. Um, but his use, of, uh, his use of insult, his lies, his, his, uh, his attacks on Twitter, his, his bizarre um, self-contradictions which happen from one day to the next, um, his unseemly use of his own properties to entertain people, his unseemly use of the Secret Service to fund those properties. I mean, all of that, I think, has really brought down the prestige of the presidency in a way that's going to be very, very hard to recover. I, I don't know who the next president will be, but I don't know how he or she will bring back some of the grandeur of the office. It's going to be very difficult. Okay, and very quickly, Comrade Black, because we're coming to the closing statements, that question about um, Democrats and rogue Republicans voting against him, how is he going to get his plans through uh, Congress? They've had gridlock effectively in Congress for 15 years. It's a dysfunctional system. That's why they're $2 trillion overseas, and it's a nonsensical tax code. It's not a partisan statement. They, they've had presidents and congresses of both parties, and they haven't worked together. So it is a terrible problem. Uh, they took the Congress away from Clinton and gave it to Gingrich and Bob Dole. They took the Congress away from George W. Bush and gave it to Pelosi and Harry Reid, they, uh, and, and they, uh, they took the Congress away from Obama and, uh, and gave it to John Boehner and uh, Senator McConnell. Uh, if, I think we can resolve many of the differences here in the room by saying if, if we are right, Aaron and I, that he will put his program through, there will be economic growth and it will address a great many of the problems of the vulnerable people in the country. Uh, if he can get his program through, his program will work. If he can't get it through, he'll be a failure. 
So we just have to wait and see. And, and all the talking by him or any of us isn't going to be a substitute for whether he can actually deliver and be a successful president. Uh, and on the question up here, I agree with you. And I said in my remarks, I find his infelicities quite grating. Now, I have to say, I can't reconcile them with the man I know personally. He's very polite and courteous and thoughtful. He never raises his voice. He's never vulgar, unlike Mrs. Clinton. Not that I care particularly, but she's rather crude of speech, though she's always very nice when I've met her. But uh, Donald is not as he appears. But that's how he appears, and I agree. It, it does dilute the gravity and distinction of that very great office, and I don't like it either. Keys is shaking his head there. Honorable <laughs> friend, I, I apologize. Which Trump are you talking about? The one that insulted women by grabbing their private parts? That Trump? Shame on him then, shame on him now. That is the Trump that this world knows. Thank you very much. All right. All right, thank you very much indeed. Well, we've had the debate, but before I announce the final vote um, to see who's won this debate, let me remind you of how you, the audience, uh, voted before you heard our speakers today. So, the pre-debate results for the motion, Trump is making America great again. For the motion, 13% against 67%, don't know, 20%. And the final results of this Intelligence Squared debate, for the motion, 20%, against the motion, 76%, and the don't know, 4%. So, congratulations to against the motion, you won. You also enjoyed the greatest swing. Thank you very much indeed to our panel, Conrad Black, Aaron Banks, Anne Applebaum and Giza Khan. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you to our audience and to all our viewers, wherever you've been watching this, and of course to Intelligence Squared for making this possible. From me, Zain Abadawi, goodbye. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. 